0: My dear Bagginses and Boffins, Took's and Brandy Bucks, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Brace Girdles, and Proudfoots.
1: Proud feet!
0: Welcome to my brother, my captain, my podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy, nigh 20 years hence.
1: The power of Isengard is at your command, Sauron, Lord of the Earth. Oscar build army worthy
0: Today's episode is Isengard Unleashed our eighth episode on 2001's The Lord of the Rings The Fellowship of the Ring. But first our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough. And we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. And I'll just do one quick announcement again that we have stretch goals over at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb to unlock uh, book-only and extended edition scene episodes of this podcast. So for today's discussion, uh, since we're going to be spending all of our time here in Isengard, uh, we figured we'd talk about Christopher Lee a little bit, as well as Den- um, sorry, uh, John Noble, who also auditioned for the role of Saruman for these films, and he would eventually get the role of Denethor for Return of the King. So Christopher Lee was born in 1922, and i just like to point out that he was related to Ian Fleming, the author of James Bond, uh, through his mom's second marriage. Uh, He volunteered to fight for the Finnish during the Winter War, but he actually never got close to combat. And then he served in the Royal Air Force in World War II, uh, supposedly doing classified operations for the Special Ops Executive. Uh, Despite being a major James Bond fan, I don't really know a whole much about um, the British military or their intelligence service infrastructure. Christopher Lee is also famous for many other roles, maybe most prominently as Dracula. Um, I think during the '60s and '70s, he featured in several Dracula films. I met him way back in the day in the fi- in the Bond film, The Man with the Golden Gun, where he played the titular man with the golden gun, aka Scaramanga. And then, of course, coming out concurrently with the Lord of the Rings movies is. Uh, the Star Wars prequels in which he played Count Dooku, the very memorable Count Dooku. Um, His other film credits include classics like The Wicker Man. Um, But uh, that's basically my familiarity with Christopher Lee outside of these Lord of the Rings films.
1: I'm not much of a Bond person, but um, I have heard um, that um, for a lot of people, Christopher Lee was like their... Reason for sticking with the Bond films, even if they were kind of, well, not even. You know, though they were kind of campy and hokey, he, like, lent that, like, gravitas to some of the—well, to one of the earlier Bond films, um, which is absolutely wild to me because I grew up with Christopher Lee as Count Dooku, and his name is literally Dooku. There is no gravitas involved. I mean, it's just one of these things where, like, having come to Lord of the Rings quite late um, and seeing him as Saruman, in my head, I'm like, yeah, but you're still Dookie, aren't you, bro? <laughs>
0: yeah, so— um Like, The Man with the Golden Gun, I wouldn't say is one of the better Bond films. It's actually probably in my bottom half. However, like, he is one of the better villains. Um, And he's one of the few villains who is actually, like, kind of goes toe-to-toe with uh, James Bond in a way a lot of other villains don't, because they're usually just, like, the man in the chair with the cat. Um, In a way, (laughs) he's like another Lord of the Rings alum, Sean Bean, who plays Boromir, uh, who plays 006 in GoldenEye, and is also kind of uh, supposed to be a match for Bond. Um, And, you know, doing the research for this and finding out that he, you know, he used to, you know, do classified operations for, you know, a branch of the uh, British intelligence and that he was related to Ian Fleming. It kind of brings all of that full circle to me. Uh, Besides his films, maybe the other thing uh, Christopher Lee is most known for at this point is that he is a big Lord of the Rings fan as in terms of the books and uh, Tolkien. In fact, he's the only actor to have ever met Tolkien. And it turns out he actually helped guide some of the choices, production, um, and all sorts of stuff like that during the course of this film's creation.
1: Yeah, um, so we'll talk about this um, slightly later and when we, we chat about some of the hair and makeup choices. but um, I was reading an anecdote from some of the um, production staff um, for this film. Especially for uh, Two Towers, and um, who said that he used to come hang out with like the hair and makeup team and, and give them a whole bunch of advice on um, like creature creation. And at first, I was like, okay, like yeah, he's read the books, but like the orcs don't necessarily get a huge amount of description in. The book, so it's kind of strange that he was doing it, and then it, it hit me this morning. It's because he was in hammer horror for so long, he was a, like a, a crucial part of the hammer horror, like cultural juggernaut. Well, I guess cultural juggernaut might be overplaying it, but like like <laughs> <laughs> the cultural icon that was hammer horror. Um, and I think, uh, as, as we'll kind of get into it slightly later, like you definitely see. Um, both through like Peter Jackson's own influence, and also now I'm starting to guess through Christopher Lee's influence, um, some of that pulpier horror elements to how some of the uh, big baddies in this are played. Um, And it is delightful to me that um, Christopher Lee probably had a hand in shaping that.
0: And I kind of buried the lead here. He actually read uh, The Lord of the Rings once a year, supposedly, which is dedication and a sign of poison fandom that we all see nowadays <laughs> as I reread, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire every year or my favorite Spider-Man comics or something like that. So um, he's a book nerd through and through and he might even be the martial champion of book nerds or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, I like have a, well, I don't because he was a big Tory, but I have like, in a, in, a, in a better world where he wasn't a Tory, I have like a shrine to him for really championing, championing um, the kind of joyless, humorless book nerds. Um, and uh, You know, as we progress through this film um, and Two Towers Um, we'll we'll probably talk more about like some of the spats that he had with Peter Jackson over uh, the direction of the film Um, and in almost every single instance it was just him uh, doing what I kind of do on this podcast which is like stomping his feet and being like well you know the book says this Um, so you know
0: God love him (laughs) well hero oh God I kind of want to say that makes me the Gandalf but knowing how much you hate Gandalf I really don't want to run with that analogy for this podcast (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and, uh, speaking of Gandalf, uh, Christopher Lee actually, uh, first auditioned, uh, for the role of Gandalf before getting the role of Saruman. Um, he was 17 years older than, uh, Ian McKellen, who did end up getting the role of Gandalf. And I think part of this decision was the role of Gandalf would require a lot more horseback riding and stunt work. And Christopher Lee was just kind of past all that, despite all the flipping he does in Attack of the Clones. um, (laughs) He just wasn't really there to be that much of, like, a physical presence in the way Gandalf would be throughout the three films. Um, But part of me starts to wonder if when they realize that McKellen... um, you know would get Gandalf and then they eventually cast Christopher Lee as Saruman whether they kind of like beefed up some of the Saruman stuff because when you get an actor like Christopher Lee um you tend to write stuff just to kind of showcase those kind of actors especially someone who has that kind of like like, acting nobility aura around him as Christopher Lee would. Um, You know, you just kind of want to give him more stuff to do.
1: Yeah, and I think this um, nicely allows me to say my first... Maybe my first. No, I I think I've had a couple slightly more insane takes. Anyways, one of my most insane takes about these films is that I genuinely and earnestly believe that um, Christopher Lee should have played Denethor, um, and I think he would have been... um, you know, even if you hadn't changed any of the lines in the script, even if nothing had changed about these films, except for Christopher Lee being Denethor, you would have had an infinitely more book-accurate Denethor than, uh, than John Noble's portrayal. Um, and similarly, because John Noble is such like an obscenely good villain, he plays just the most delightful, campy, excellent villain you could ever come up with, if he had been Saruman... Um, and he did audition for Sour Man, Um, it would have been, I think, just the perfect spot on casting. Um, But, you know, I guess they really wanted old British Tories to belay uh, Wizards, um, and I feel that we lost out on some great uh, Denethor crack there for him having not been put in that role.
0: Yeah, to uh, kind of round out what Emily's saying, uh, John John Noble, who you might know as uh, Denethor from The Return of the King theatrical edition, but he is in the extended edition of The Two Towers as well. Um, fun fact, in the Two Towers extended edition credits, he is named John Nogle, which is just a typo, uh, but it's just kind of funny that that was there. He's an Australian-born actor, and he, in 1999, ad- auditioned for both Saruman and Denethor, and it turned out that... um uh John Noble read on OneRing.net that Lee got the Saruman part over him, though he would get a call a little bit later saying that he would be cast as Denethor, which uh, the OneRing.net, which, you know, goes all the way back to uh, 2001 at the, or 1999-2000 at the very least. Um, they actually just recently retweeted one of my memes on Twitter, so I am a fan of them now. I have no idea what that online community is like. Uh, but yeah <laughs>
1: um he so he's also in in fringe which is um uh, well i'll be nice because um, my partner likes the show a lot um and i won't reveal how little i think of that show um but he's also in fringe um which is uh jj abrams production and um, kind of x Files x filesy but if uh if Chris Carter were, like, 10% more unhinged. Um, and he's dead funny in that, but it's also really, really difficult for me to watch because I can't watch the films or the TV show and not see Thor and that stupid cherry tomato. Um, and I feel bad because, like, John Noble is such a brilliant actor and, and really does carry most of these parts with, like, the right level of, like standing on the precipice of insanity that I think a lot of these characters require. Um, but yeah, he is now just permanently Denethor to me, which which sucks.
0: <laughs> Um, I think in the early teens, so about 10, maybe eight years ago, there was a Fox drama called Sleepy Hollow, um, which was kind of a monster of the weekish, you know, based on the Sleepy Hollow myths and all that. And he played a prominent character in that. And he was great. He got to chew a lot of scenery. Um, The show itself was the first season was pretty good. And then it kind of really fell off after that. Um, But he was great. He brought a lot of presence and uh, gravitas to a very kind of goofy show. Uh, but yeah, that's how I know him from. And in doing the research for this episode, um, I was able to stumble upon uh, like forum posts from 2000, uh, 2001, saying that John Noble has been cast as Denethor and People asking, like, does anyone know this guy? Is he any good or whatever? Um, turns out he's very good. Yeah, just brilliant.
1: Um and I, I think it is kind of nice because he is um in some ways, and this is not just me forcing parallels for the sake of forcing parallels, like I do actually genuinely believe this, but I think he is kind of like a nice counter to um, Saruman in terms of like villain status. Now, now obviously Denethor of Return of the King is not a proxy for for Sauron in the way that Saruman is. Um, but I think in terms of like acting skill and what they bring to the films, um, Christopher Lee brings this like very hard-nosed, um, very sort of old-world English discipline um. He he definitely comes to it as sort of an aristocrat of like notable pedigree. Um and ends up kind of having to like do some things that are a bit campy and a bit hokey. Um and, and in in so doing kind of lends that like seriousness to things that are campy and hokey. Whereas uh John Noble comes to it um, you know, by virtue of being on Australian, not really being part of like that hard-nosed English aristocracy. Um with a bit more of the sort of like camp extravagant element to how he's acting and and doing some quite like intensely serious scenes um, that have like a huge amount of emotional heft. And so it, it, in this weird kind of way, they kind of mi- meet in the middle in terms of like horror villain camp and also like Shakespearean tragedy, but they're coming at it from from opposite angles and it, it has this kind of like nice nice um, blend. You know, as a book fan though, I just kind of wish that... Uh, they'd had it opposite. They'd they'd still done the same trajectory, just
0: from different starting points. And I think from the film sense, there is kind of a, I don't know, thematic, but like, kind of like a antagonist handoff uh, in terms of who kind of Gandalf is, you know, positioning himself against for the first two films. It's very much Saruman, um, who, you know, is not really present in the third film, but that's kind of when Denethor kind of plays the opposite of Gandalf and Ian McKellen. And I know you have a lot of Gandalf thoughts that I'm trying not to uh, <laughs> poke at right now, but um, I do think he is meant to be kind of a successor, kind of like ne- the next mini boss for Gandalf to uh, take on, even though they're not like directly opposed in the same way that Saruman and Gandalf are.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely also, I think, in in the sense of like once Saruman is defeated, um, as like sad and tragic as it may sound, there is like a little bit less magic in this world and and so with that little bit less magic um Gandalf's foe is no longer a wizard it it's just simply a man who has you know the the same failings that men do and the same sort of like pressure points um and so Gandalf then has to kind of tighten what his like interests are um and what his kind of uh like a realm of focus is um and and that transition between Like you say, between Saruman and Denethor is really like the perfect way of envisioning that. begins with the single worst manicure of all time, as Saruman dry-force lightnings the our stone, facetiming Sauron to give him the bad news we've been waiting for. Isengard belongs to him. And Sauron, the world's biggest fan of looking gift horses in the mouth, makes his first demand. Isengard must provide an army worthy of Mordor. Saruman, looking like he's suffering through a bad trip, is approached by three pathetic looking orcs asking after their orders from Mordor. Even the grunts, it seems, know that Saruman's not really in charge here. Issuing precise orders that would make any good project manager proud, Saruman vaguely responds, We have work to do. No shit, dude, I thought we were off to Ibiza. Cut to the uprooting of the trees of Isengard, crying out with almost human wails as they're ruthlessly pulled to the ground below, thudding loudly enough that poor old Gandalf is forced to pick himself up off the floor and make something of himself. The bad news? He can't. The camera slowly zooms outwards, revealing he is well and truly shit out of luck, stranded on top of a monumental tower, surrounded on all sides by enemies, and pelted by rain, forced to watch helplessly as the highland clearances play out before his very eyes. As Gandalf curls into himself, the wailing of the trees continues, a mournful, tearful lament for nature rent asunder by the all-consuming evil of the perpetual growth economy. Somebody get Andre Gores on the line. Trees are strong, my lord. Their roots go
0: deep. Rip them all down.
1: Several scenes later, we return to Isengard, still trapped in the dark, dark night, but now soaring over enormous ramparts made of cliff, revealing an equally enormous canyon, a glowing red scar cleaved across the land from the jagged mountainsides to the base of Orthanc. We zoom across colossal shaded watchtowers and down into the wretched, blindingly bright mechanical core of the operation. The ports of Los Angeles, you have met your match. Suddenly, elegantly, a moth flutters across the flame, glowing, unlike the industrial hellhole below, thanks to the pale light of the moon. It is the only truly living thing for miles. A chorus escorts our new moth friend as he easily flies above the unnaturally smooth walls of Orthanc, revealing that no, there is in fact another living creature here, and it seems he is in terrible shape. Lo, Gandalf, fresh from a night on the town and a morning spent hugging the toilet, with no time for a quick hairbrush before he faces the cameras, reaches out and snatches our wee moth pal, uttering unintelligible elvish words to it before, like any good Animal Crossing player who catches a bug when their inventory is full, releasing it back to the night. The drums kick in, and it's time for the moth to become George Mackay in 1917, as we say goodbye to him and take a hard nosedive straight into the pits of hell, presumably pointing and laughing at those scrubs Dante and Virgil for just not thinking to take a running jump instead. Making your 20,000-step-a-day goal? Not on my watch, pal. Immediately, we're bombarded with the sounds of heavy industry— mallets against anvils, blisteringly hot fires snapping, crackling, and popping, orcs with no dental insurance sharpening bleeds against fast spinning whetstones and tossing logs into furnaces while an entire tree tumbles and splinters on its way down from the earth above. Saruman, looking like the good little mid-level manager that he is, wanders silently through the labyrinthine factory lines. Did no one think to invent Fordism in Middle-earth? Maybe if their shop floors had been designed a little more efficiently, they might have won the war. But fear not, there is something of late-stage industrial capitalism here, as orcs use shovels and stakes to forcibly birth new, stronger orcs right out of their horrible mud wombs and directly into the production lines. Jeff Bezos, eat your heart out. It's a grotesque scene. These newest of orcs, we later learn they're called Erakai, are born only to immediately kill the smaller, weaker, inferior orcs, even as they still drip with their earthen amniotic fluid. Subtlety, thy name is Peter Jackson. Welcome, my lords, to Isengard after the fall.
0: So first off, just want to, you know, congratulate Emily on just an amazing recap there. Um, I'm sure you guys welcome the pleasant change of pace from my monotone voice. Anyways, the Rule of Three is a fairly common writing standard for narrative emphasis, and Fellowship deploys this method in showing us the descent of Isengard from a world of green to a realm of metal. In our Treason of Isengard episode, Gandalf arrives to a lush, tree-filled courtyard surrounding Orthanc. In our return to Isengard, the first portion of this recap, we see the roots being upended as Gandalf curls up under the rain atop the tower. And in the third scene, Isengard has fully transformed into industry, the war machine in motion. All of this is very economical. This transformation is never really shown to us in the text, but as the film set up Saruman as a halfway boss, one rung below Sauron, getting the setup helps build heat for the villain. The way Isengard morphs from verdant greens to scorched earth acts almost as a mini-character arc for the setting, but we can extrapolate it to the character of Sauruman as well. We talked in that fourth episode about Sauron's tragedy, but by the time Gandalf showed up at Orthanc, Sauron had already turned. We, the audience, did not get to see his descent. By using Isengard as a stand-in for the wizard, we kind of get that retroactive character work done via setting, which is both a neat literary trick and using the medium of cinema to its fullest potential, showing us rather than telling. Which gets me to my next bit real quickly, how much of these sequences use little to no dialogue. The metamorphosis of Isengard does the character work, showing Saruman's mind becoming one of metal. Gandalf's despair doesn't really need to be vocalized, and the inherent viciousness of the Urukai is shown by Lurtz killing the first living thing he sees. And that viciousness is compounded by Saruman wordlessly holding back the orcs who want to help their comrade being choked out by Lurts. So we can start analyzing the story a bit here, and um, Saruman uh, in the movies is more directly a thrall of Sauron in the sense that he's Mostly just kind of like a high-level general in Sauron's army, um, as opposed to maybe, say, someone with his own um, you know, motivations and goals that might run counter to that of the Dark Lord. Uh, maybe we'll dive into this just a little bit more later on in the Two Towers, where Saruman really steps forward as kind of um, that mini-boss is the term I like to use for him. But, you know, as kind of like that secondary antagonist for the story.
1: Yeah. And I think it like, um, there are sort of hints at, um, Saruman's power hungriness. Like, I think Gandalf has a line along the lines of, you know, he doesn't, he referring to Zara, and you know, he doesn't share power. Um, and it kind of glances off Saruman in the films. But it is, uh, I think, something that is far more evident in, in the books is that he is a guy really after his own sort of agenda. Um, and he's a bit more of a loose canon. Um, in the books than in the movies. In the movies he's he's almost kind of made path, path, pathetic not in like a I'm judging the movies way but like his his character is more pathetic looking, more downtrodden, more kind of beaten down by like this like all-encompassing evil um because he's kind of been so quickly turned and doesn't really have a mind of his own and in a lot of ways given how well the movie sets up the amount of power that he has and that is behind him, it is all the more tragic that he kind of just sits around or, you know, wanders around doing what everybody else tells them to do because he really shouldn't be in that position.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really set up maybe in that previous Isengard scene where uh, he's, you know, pleading to Gandalf, we need to join with Sauron. But really that the first moments of this episode that we're discussing are the fact that he's, you know, talking to Sauron through the Palantir and Sauron just basically giving him orders as opposed to any kind of like we're equals or we're having a conversation about what to do next. It's more just he got an order from Sauron and then you see him kind of pensive, maybe even a little bit anxious, like how do I do this thing that I was ordered to do? Um, before we start seeing the scorching of Isengard,
1: yeah, and I think one of the things that I find really interesting, and this is not something that's talked about in in the movies, nor do I think it is something that should be talked about in the movies necessarily, but in terms of like the the this sounds weird, but in terms of like the hierarchy of the various like species slash races of uh, the legendarium, uh, Sauron and uh, and Saruman are actually. Even they—they are—they are basically equal. They are like third tier down from um, from God, from Eru Um and there really shouldn't necessarily be that power imbalance. They are both theoretically capable of all the same things. It's just that Saruman uh, has been beaten down so much more effectively, and Sauron is far cleverer and and like craftier than Saruman ever was
0: capable of being. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to move on to the butterfly, which uh, Emily graced us with the Animal Crossing sound, which just delights me to no end. Um, The butterfly obviously is the means by which uh, Gandalf will eventually make his escape, but it obviously has some sort of... um, what's it called, Uh, metaphorical value as well. Um, First of all is the fact that it just speaks to Gandalf's connection to nature. We talked about this in our previous Isengard episode about how his staff is very much, you know, one rot of wood uh, from a tree. It has a very natural look to it. Um, And we'll see the... The way that wizards and uh, nature interact um, is very important, especially leading up to the climax of the two towers with the last march of the ends. And you can almost put a reading on this that this butterfly almost came to Gandalf in a way that nature realized something was wrong, especially as all the trees and all the grass and all that stuff is just being totally destroyed um, at the feet of Orthanc. We see nature maybe kind of reaching out as like, we need to save this guy so that he in turn can help save us um, following the corruption of Saruman. And we'll get into this, um, you know, when we get to Rivendell. But of course, this butterfly will go on to be uh, what calls um, the king of the eagles, I believe it is, Guaher. Um I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that poorly. I'll have Emily correct me <laughs> on that in a second. And then they'll use that visual symbol of the... Butterfly, again, in uh, Return of the King at the Battle of the Black Gate, and in The Hobbit films at the climax of An Unexpected Journey. And one thing I also kind of put into my head uh, just now as I was talking is a butterfly is often uh, associated with metamorphosis when it um, you know, goes from a caterpillar, makes a cocoon, and then emerges as a butterfly— Gandalf himself is also going to go through a metamorphosis over the course of these films from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White. Um, when he, you know, kind of when he's in, uh, and then reveals himself as Gandalf the w- White in front of, uh, Theoden it's almost like he's taking off his cocoon of his gray cloak and revealing himself to be the butterfly of Gandalf the White and I'll stop myself from going on with that kind of clumsy metaphor <laughs> any further.
1: Yeah, so I just want to say that I absolutely agree with you and I think that like symbolism is like is fascinating and uh definitely the interpretation I agree with. However, unfortunately, my partner loves moths and hates butterflies and went out of his way to double check um to see if it was a butterfly or a moth because he's convinced it's a moth and will and he will not I'll be so sad if i don't say that it is a moth um unfortunately that has no fun analytic value so i am hereby vetoing the interpretation of it as a moth and saying it's a butterfly <laughs> um, and i'd like totally agree with you like it does set up gandalf as as this character and me- metamorphosization is that word <laughs> it is now um, it is now yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so uh, i i love it and i think it is very sweet um and i, it, I and it's also like such like a nice um like filmmaking touch because because they are such like soft kind of gentle creatures and it really does build up that contrast between the industrial hellhole below and like such a strong and like um efficient way
0: yeah and uh to be honest i was when i first saw these movies and i'm also not a entomologist, someone who studies bugs and stuff like that. Um I didn't really know if it was supposed to be like a one to one, you know, a butterfly or a moth or whatever. Just the way it has very furry kind of uh, antlers is the wrong word. Uh antennae. That's there we go. Um <laughs> (laughs) just it kind of looked just enough where it might be like kind of a fictional take on a butterfly or myth kind of like how they're oliphants instead of elephants in Lord of the Rings so I was kind of unsure at least the first couple times I watched it whether it was supposed to be you know straight up one of the insects from our real world or maybe just kind of a little middle earthy version of it but I don't think it's a great mystery and I don't know if there's much more to ring out (laughs) from uh, this moment other than what we've just said
1: (laughs) yeah I will (laughs) agree
0: And then we can talk a little bit about the trees and uh, just how great the foley work here is, um because you can feel the lurching, the yawning, um the falling. Um, it just it's just like so visceral. like it, it, they make a point to make sure you are hearing these trees fall, and you are hearing every branch kind of break, every leaf kind of fall off. But it is punched up a little bit. so it does feel like, a bit supernatural, more than the sounds we'd expect. You know, insert joke about a tree falling in the woods and if anyone's there to hear it. But it is punched up to be a little bit so. I put a reading on it that it is the trees crying out in pain. Like, we'll find out that they're alive in the next film, um, as opposed to just the natural songs they would make if, natural sounds they would make if they were being chopped down.
1: Yeah, I'm with you there. And and I, I also think there's kind of like, you know, even if it's not necessarily sentient like the trees aren't necessarily as sentient as um as Treebeard, beard um, there is sort of this sense of like the blurring of the lines between sentience and uh not non sentient um and i think that is like something that's like super integral to um like tolkien's legendarium as written in the books um like especially like the the silmarillion um and um a lovely connection in and the films which i think takes that kind of emphasis on nature a, a lot more seriously um than it necessarily has to but like to great great effect
0: mm-hmm. and I, i'm gonna just uh quick tangent here uh try to pay more attention to the foley work in general because it's just spectacular across these films um, I regret in our previous episode on Weather Top that I didn't talk about the Foley work of the Nazgul uh, top Weather Top because every step they take, every time they kind of t- uh, grab their swords a little bit tighter, you can hear the metal of their like gaunt- gaunt- gauntlet pieces, like kind of touching each other and rubbing up against each other. And it They really do a good job of dialing it up and dialing it down appropriately. Um, It feels like sound mixing is a little bit of a lost art when I watch a lot of modern blockbusters these days Mm -hmm. where I can't really hear anything um, if their characters are talking. And then, you know, all the action stuff is just way too loud. I feel like these movies really have a great sense of itself and knows when to punch up and punch down certain bits of the sound effect.
1: Yeah, I feel like I say this every episode, but I mean it is true in basically every episode. But like th- this is a film series that is like incredibly aware of what the tools of filmmaking are and how they kind of correspond to what the like written tools of of um like, storytelling are. And, and they are very much doing, like, a one-to-one in terms of, like, you know, they build a set for uh, a film and mm-hmm. Tolkien builds a language. Um, Tolkien writes songs for these and they use incredibly ingenious um, sound uh, design techniques to 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 bring that kind of set and those characters to life, um, and like you say, like all the way through, um, the the really impressive sound editing and sound sound mixing, sound design um, is really not something that like I think you can um, say like like treat lightly. It's not just that someone is making sure like the gain on all of the microphones is set correctly. It's someone who's going through thinking, how does this microphone placement or how does this specific sound effect contribute to the overall effect of the world that this uh film is trying to create
0: yeah and like peter jackson himself we've already talked about he's a great you know pulp horror fan uh from back in the day but he obviously also just has a love for a lot of old hollywood and old cinema um i'm not like an expert on this but you can see how much of like uh, the Errol Flynn, um, you know, Robin Hood movies are in some of the action or even some Kurosawa stuff like Seven Samurai. Um, and then obviously, you know, he has a big affection for King Kong because he would go on to remake it. Um, and this all points me to like, he's very much interested in that artifice of cinema, what it takes to create these things and bring them to life um, beyond just say, hey, hey, a computer did it kind of thing. Um, all the like little tools, tricks and everything that makes a filmmaker, he is very finely tuned into them.
1: Yeah and I mean like I feel like the scene in particular um especially because as you say there's almost no dialogue in it um is is really kind of like a like a, a what is it like a like a fire reel um it just like it is flex after flex after flex the whole way through this sequence um and and it's amazing you know not to say that like actors aren't necessary but it is amazing how much of a story you can tell in in film without ever speaking a single word and that is i think like entirely down to the like skill and success and thoughtfulness in some ways of the the production team
0: and while we're focusing on the film aspect of this we might as well start talking about uh a minor character who was created for this film and that is lertz the had urukai played by lawrence Macquarie, uh Macquarie, i uh, i do not know how to pronounce it um i believe he was a maori or a new zealand native um but uh i'll fact check that for, like, before we go on further um but he's kind of made up uh so that like you kind of have a a focus point someone to like kind of focus in on as kind of a leader especially because we're going to kind of see the Urukai, um you know kind of form their battalion and march uh try to hunt down the fellowship and then obviously he'll have the big climactic moments of killing boromir which spoiler alert i guess and then fighting Aragorn uh in the game uh game in the film's uh finale so um it's kind of it's kind of just one of those things they do for film just like Give the audience someone to kind of focus on, so it kind of stands in as a synecdoche for the larger urukai that are in this film, um, and it just it's it's a tried and true method of adaptation where when you have something like this, like this evil force, to kind of just put a face, you know, at the head of it, just so it makes it easier for um, storytelling purposes and easier to track what the urukai are doing for as little as it is in this film.
1: Yeah, I like I think this is kind of a sign of how bad my eyesight is. Um, which and, and by extension how terrible of like a, a movie watcher um I am. But until quite recently I didn't realize it was one Uric Um I really just thought that it was loads of different ones. Um and I think it was like a couple like three or four times ago that I watched uh, fellowship and was like oh damn it is the same guy the whole way through and really just felt like an absolute genius in that moment um really kind of brain firing on all cylinders there um but now that I have noticed that um it is like uh, it is it's kind of not to use the word notice too many times but like is actually noticeable how much of like a, 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 a how much character work actually goes into the single orc um and and how much kind of presence he brings to one character who like by and large could very easily not actually stand out from the fray um and we'll talk a little bit later in in some of the makeup sections about like the relationship of the like orcs and the orks to like zombie uh zombies and and like pulp horror um it would be very easy for him to just kind of play it like a like a a nameless uh back from the dead kind of more prosthetic than anything else, kind of figure. Um, but he doesn't. He like definitely plays it as a leader and definitely tries to like command the scenes that he's in. And I think that is uh, tremendously effective. Um, though obviously caveated by the fact that my blind ass missed that um, a lot. I will note, though, I do wear coke bottle glasses, so that's not necessarily like a like a mark against the film's success in that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I think also part of it is just to give Christopher Lee someone to actually talk to that isn't just overt narration um, for the last half of this film. Um, Because until kind of Grima Wormtongue shows up a third of the way through Two Towers, at least in Saruman's presence, he doesn't really have a stage partner once he imprisons Gandalf. Um, So this kind of allows him to have someone, you know, to again just utilize Christopher Lee. But then he can talk about do you know how the orcs came into being and give us just a little bit of exposition uh, later on in the film, which we'll get to in a later episode, but it does just give him a scene partner that isn't too forced, um, kind of feels organic to what's going on with the story itself.
1: Yeah. And definitely I think also gives him kind of a foil um, a little bit later. We'll, we'll circle that circle back to this god corporate jargon, horrible. Um, but like um, Saruman is definitely in a limited sense, the kind of brains of the operation and Lertz is very much the, the brawn and Putting pitting them against one another, I think, um, helps to kind of like unsettle the power dynamics because theoretically Saruman is in charge, but this guy shows up and starts flexing immediately, and it's like, mm, is is Saruman really in charge or is he momentarily lucky about Saruman having like giving him his favor? And at any moment, could he quite reasonably be knocked the fuck out by this massive orc, and nobody would really care?
0: So now we'll transition into our cinematography and film craft section of this portion. And I think the one that stands out um, for me specifically is the shot of the butterfly and how it uh, reaches the top of Orthanc and then uh, how the camera zooms down. So it's basically like three cuts or maybe two cuts and three takes. Um, But basically uh, when we return to Isengard in the second set of scenes we're talking about today, um, we get kind of an establishing shot of Isengard. Um, We see that Orcs are manning the walls, and we see the caverns being dug out and utilized for industry. Uh, but then we kind of uh, butterfly. Sorry, I should start saying moth uh, <laughs> just to not piss off Emily's partner. Um, but it uh, flies onto screen, and then we kind of see it with. Uh, see it make its way all the way up uh, to the top of Orthanc. And this is all done in one great cut. So while we're watching it fly up, we get a real good look of like a bird's eye or eagle's eye view of what Isengard looks like now. Um, And then it cuts once uh, Gandalf, you know, captures it in his hand and he takes a look at it. Um, And then once he sets it free, um, it's just one shot um, that uh, zooms like straight down into the caverns of Isengard. And there is kind of a like a velocity to these scenes where the, you know, the moth flying up to the top kind of has a more steady pace, whereas uh, the descent into the caverns is more like someone fell and hit terminal velocity. And all of this is just kind of adding some verticality to this world. We've already talked about how, you know, in terms of an X and Y axis, we're going across a map, you know, from the upper left corner to the lower right corner. But, you know, there's a sense of verticality to this world in terms of mountains and mines, um, caves and you know hills, like Weathertop was one that we talked about last week. Um, we're going to have a very stark contrast coming up uh, in a couple episodes when the fellowship goes from the Pass of Karaduras, um, which is like one of the highest peaks in the Misty Mountain. Um, I might be making that up, so don't fact-check me on that. And then that's immediately followed by the Mines of Moria, which is po- perhaps the lowest we uh, get into this world. So it's kind of existing on a Z-axis in terms of on top of the X and Y axis.
1: Yeah. And I, I think this is one of the the kind of like I don't want to call it a horror movie element, but the, the kind of sense of like enclosure and that like we see that this is a hugely expansive world, um, and that it really does go five thousand feet in the air and five thousand feet beneath. Um, but you are not safe anywhere. Um, there is nowhere in Middle Earth that is safe. Um, you can dig as far as you want, like the dwarves, and you will still reach danger. You can fly as high as you want, like like the eagles, um, or like the moth. Um, and there is still danger. Um, you really you really can't go anywhere except for straight into Mount Doom. So one of the things that um, I, I've kind of been thinking about a little bit with with this shot in particular, um, and especially kind of like vis-a-vis a lot of the way, or the way that a lot of like modern slash contemporary films are, are shot, but but this shot in particular, this, this almost single shot of the moth, um, and it's like a, a minute and a half long, um, which is quite impressively long, um, it, it does something really unique, which is it sets us up, us as the audience up, as kind of like omniscient viewers, um, which which is sort of how we engage in in some ways with the the text of the book. Um, but it really kind of sets us outside of the world because we're able to do all of these things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. We're able to track a moth, we're able to, you know, dive down into the places that even the moth can't get to. Um, and it, it kind of reinvigorates this feeling of like, this is a storybook. You are being told a story. You are not in this story. You are not like a, a character in it. You are set apart from it. That does not mean that you can't like empathize greatly and feel as if you like have a, like a sense of ownership over the story, but you are not a character in the story. And this is not meant to be like realistic to your life. And this is how the, the, uh, like the director and the cinematographer set that up, which is these massive sweeping shots and, and this kind of feeling that like you are everywhere and nowhere at once. Um, and I think that is like a just like lovely and little fun. Um, and I think it is such a nice contrast as well to the kind of, um, I don't want to call it like narcissistic, um, but but slightly kind of like self-involved way that lots of films are shot now where they are very much shot from like one character's perspective. And like you are always at eye level or sli- like within like 18 inches of like the tallest person, tallest or shortest person on screen within 18 inches of their eye level. You are always kind of facing down the action. There's never really any sort of like visual intrigue because the purpose of these films is to make you feel as if you could walk through the camera right into them and be at home and like continue living your life as normal. Um, these kind of shots kind of reestablish that like sense of fantasy. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, one thing I was thinking about, and again, I might just be making this up off the top of my head, but for as many s- dialogue scenes as there are in this movie, you don't see a lot of just standard shot, reverse shot, you know, over the shoulder, just people talking to each other in a very kind of standard sitcom or soap opera way, uh, which is no you know, shade on those, that's what the medium is. Um, but even... Uh, it's it just skewing like the standard kind of way things are shot now because even if you you know watch say the Avengers, which you know are movies I generally like still. Um, it's you know anytime there's a dialogue scene it's shot reverse shot over the shoulder camera angles. It's all very flat. Um, you know the cuts are you know maybe too long or too short. Um, it doesn't feel as precise as these films specifically do.
1: Yeah, and I think it's, like, very much about, like, thinking about, again, like I mentioned, thinking about what each moving piece of a film set or film production can do for the overall story. It's not just, you know, we are putting this camera in front of these actors so that we can get as much, you know, screen time as possible for these actors so that people who like these actors will come and see this movie and feel like they've gotten their requisite 90 minutes of Chris Evans' face or whatever it is. This we have a we have a creative and narrative goal for for these films and for the story that we are trying to tell. Since we have that goal to begin with, we now need to think about how we're going to accomplish that. These are the tools at our disposal. Those tools are uh, sound design, uh, costume design, and and hair and makeup design. Um, they are uh, the the score uh, composing music. They are. Um, cinematography um and i think like this this scene in particular and and the like um sharp contrast between the kind of sweeping um expansive Sing- well, single-ish shot um, following the moth straight down into uh, the caverns of Isengard compared with once there's um, a, like a hammer blow on an anvil that cuts off um, this long sweeping shot. You suddenly start to get like these really choppy, bumpy um, shots as like, you know, metal is thrown against metal. Um, we see like uh, swords being poured. We see orcs fighting with one another. And it is very much like the, the production team have sat down and thought, we're going to have these things. We could have like a boring, like wide angle shot, put the camera on like a shitty crane and just keep that crane still. And in one corner, we'll have the orcs fighting and in another corner, we'll have the... Uh, like, you know, a different set of orcs, like, um, you know, uh, hammering out swords, and then another one will have them pouring hot metal, and it'll all be kind of happening at the same time. They're thinking, no, actually, the best way to convey the like emotionality and the like physicality of this scene is by sharp, quick shots go, 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 go. And then cutting after that, after we kind of see this like industrial kind of fervor slowing down as we get into like, um, and I'm really sorry for all of the words that I'm about to say in this next bit, but like the mud wombs, um, and it is just like pure natal body horror, but like y- the camera as we see this like mud womb and this birthing of the Eurex um, starts to kind of move slowly like the mud. Um, and And then it kind of, as Lurtz is is born, it does this this really incredible thing that that I I like quite a lot though. Like it does kind of nauseate me to think about, but um, it drops into this. Um, so it starts in this position where we're basically equal with his face as as he's born. We're slightly, at a slight decline, but more or less equal. And then as like the amniotic fluid that's, or like the afterbirth that's dripping from him, drips down his body, the camera drips as well. Um, and it goes as it drips into this even steeper upshot um, and it and it frames him so it's like, you know his torso, which is like jacked. This dude is jacked, um, and also dripping with like disgusting afterbirth and just things that like suck. Um, and we are suddenly seeing him as though he is really tall and really bulky. Um, and then it cuts quite sharply to Sourman. And he is also filmed in an upshot, but he's filmed in an upshot that's like quite tight around his face. Um, and that is really setting up the kind of relationship between these two, as I mentioned earlier, where like Sourman is the brains and and Lertz is the brawn. But the way they do this, I think, with with the camera and the way they like add to that characterization with the camera work is just like absolutely ingenious.
0: Yeah, it's just visceral, uh I and like just gross. Like the way he's dripping, um, it just I, I don't even have, you know, words for it. It just gives me the heebie-jeebies or something like that. Um, it's just really, really great. And I think you're really right to point out the way they use camera angles here, because we've kind of been tracking this throughout the film so far. And the way that they kind of use that to play Saruman and Lurtz against each other um, is actually really effective storytelling and something I had never even thought about. So thank you for that.
1: <laughs> it's one of these things where, like, because I'm usually so focused in these scenes on just how, like, disgusting it is like your right is like is visceral is like full of viscera and it just like it nauseates me and I also spend a lot of time because it reminds me of a scene from a horror movie. And for the life of me, and I've spent like the better part of six months trying to figure out what it is. I cannot for the life of me remember what it is. And it might be alien or something. It might be something that simple. but I, I, you know, I've, I'm always just kind of so distracted by being like, God, what horror movie is this? And when I was watching it recently, I was like, you know, I don't tend to think about my height, like my personal height, when I'm watching movies, but I'm sitting here watching the scene and feeling like I'm very short, which is not something that I'm like
0: used to when I go to the cinema and I'm sitting down
1: watching something.
0: Right. And uh, we can probably start talking a little bit about costuming and makeup um, for the orcs at Urukai. And I'll kind of just summarize kind of like how they're presented in these films before I kind of make way for Emily here. So, uh, for the most part, uh, in terms of like skin tone, um, we see browns and grays usually on the orcs. Um, the Yurikai are all uniformly like, I don't know what you want to call it, black or dark blue. Um, quite hard to say, maybe a little bit purplish in there. I'm also not great with colors. (laughs) Uh, but that's like, I can see them. I just am not good at labeling them. Um, And then uh, there are some blues and beiges that kind of pop up more in the later films. I don't think this is a colorism, but you do see more light-skinned orcs in Return of the King, uh, which may just be based on composition and color palette overall. A lot of the orc encounters, especially, say, in Two Towers and Helm's Deep are set at night, whereas when you have the Battle of Pelennor Fields, which is kind of it's in daylight even though you know there's that great big black cloud from mortar that kind of covers the battlefield um just the way that the lighting works in different settings you can see it kind of plays with the way that the orcs are used in terms of their costume color so to speak i want to talk about their hair because they all have you know probably get their hair cut at great clips (laughs) because they don't have a lot of it it's all puffs of tangled hair usually white and gray which you know um, no insult to older people or the silver foxes out there in the world but it is kind of meant to be a sign of decay a little bit um, whereas the Urukai uh they tend to have longer black hair, which maybe just again the fact that they're just freshly out of the womb as gross as that womb is um, and we sometimes see them you know kind of with like dreads or knotted hair, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little more when we get into the you know the ideology behind the costuming here in a second. Their teeth are broken, jagged, but often sharp and have fangs, uh so like Even though the orcs, you know, they they talk about eating man flesh. In fact, they talk about it quite a bit, and it's one of my favorite quotes in these entire movies. But just having them have things kind of makes you think, oh, they're going to eat you, Uh, which is just a very simple, you know, basic level of horror, but it does uh, work quite well. well. Um, Their skin is usually cracked, sometimes a bit slimy-looking or a little sweaty. Um, Their nostrils are usually uh, big and uh, flat nose. Um, in terms of eyes, they're often humanish, but occasionally we will see some that have cat eyes, uh, specifically in Moria, which I think kind of makes sense for the level of darkness that those uh, orcs or goblins have to contend with. Uh, their costuming is a combination of worn mail. Um, so it just looks very run-down armor. And it's combined with like rancid looking furs that are decorated with teeth and bones. Um, so it's all very <clears throat> sorry, very gnarly um, and very evocative of, you know, kind of horror tropes, um, or just kind of like something that's ripped right from your nightmares. And uh, speaking of rip- right from the nightmares, um, in a two thousand or twenty twenty one interview that Elijah Wood gave, um, he mentioned that one of the orc mass was actually patterned after real life monster Harvey Weinstein, and that it was patterned after him out of hatred and spite. Um, if you recall from one of our earlier episodes, um, he tried to you know play God with the production of these films, and eventually led to. Um, what's it called? Peter Jackson taking it to uh, New Line Cinema, even though uh, the Weinsteins would still have credits as producers on these films. And just to uh, wrap that up, uh, Frodo, Elijah Wood did not specify which orc uh, face was patterned after Weinstein, but the main going theory is that it is Gothmog who is the lead general in The Return of the King uh, Battle at Pelennor Fields. Yes.
1: Yes. Oh man. So this is going to be something that I think is like, uh, this is going to be quite a complex conversation, not like in a wanky way. I just think like it's, it, this is going to be kind of totally hard to strike. Um, and we set this up a few episodes ago where we kind of talked about like the underlying ideology of um, these films and the racism that is almost integral to these films. Um, and I think it is important to talk about in the context of like the orcs and the oryx and um character design um for them. Um one of the things that I, I wanna get out there first is that I think like um it is also worth noting that like a lot of the like hair and makeup design and prosthetic design for the orcs is like definitely influenced, for example, by like Italian pulp horror. Um, one of the things that like one of the instances of like zombie makeup that I often think of when I think of zombie films as uh 1981's Burial Ground uh also kind of known as Knights of Horror and that has like zombies that look very much like orcs um, and so there is definitely that influence there and we know that like Peter Jackson has that, that sort of background um, so we know that that sort of old old timey horror zombie makeup is is definitely playing into how these orcs are designed However um it is also impossible to ignore the fact that like there are a lot of Um, like deeply racist aesthetic tropes um, that are employed in creating these orcs. um, And um, I I want to kind of try and separate... film from book here, not because I'm trying to apologize for one or the other, but I think it's actually like, uh, like analytically useful to see where these kind of types of, um, racism are, are coming from because some of it is like quite vintage, you know, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s racism. And some of it is, I would say far more insidiously, um, you know, 1990s, you know, uh, I'm colorblind. We live in a post-racial world racism. Um, so, um, the orcs are not typically described in the books, except to kind of reference their height and to reference the fact that they look like shit. Um, if you want a description of the orcs um, that is as comprehensive as you can get, you actually have to go to some of Tolkien's letters, which were published by his son Christopher. Um, and in in letter 210, um, Tolkien describes the orcs thus. Um, squat, broad, flat-nosed, Sallow skinned with wide mouths and slant eyes. In fact, degraded and repulsive versions of the pretens to Europeans, close pretens, least lovely Mongol types. So, uh, not 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 good. Uh, not good. Um, but I <laughs> and I'm not doing this to like be needlessly a pedant, um, but it is uh necessary to note here that the that the like inherent racism and implied racism to what Tolkien is aiming for with his orcs is not anti-Black racism, um, it, it's um, it, anti-Asian racism, um, and, and and sort of specifically East slash Southeast Asian. Um, so there is that level of racism involved in the creation of the orcs. Yet, by the time we get to the films, um, and as the the filmmakers are creating their vision of the orcs, there is something decidedly anti-Black in and, and how they are going. They, they pick up on a lot of... Um, anti-black, uh, like aesthetic tropes to push through their, their, their vision of the orcs. Um, I could, you know, I could quite easily say, you know, it's just cause they're racist and just cause they out and out hate black people and they've just pulled this out of nowhere. Um, I do not doubt that they're, that they have, you know, that they harbor some like severely and worryingly racist instincts. Um, I would, however, say that I think this is actually part of a wider misinterpretation of, um, some some stuff that Tolkien's doing in his writing. Um and uh that misinterpretation um is is largely engendered by like this like underlying current of racism um that I think is is um endemic and um fundamental to uh, the Anglophone world. Um and I, I would actually say um particularly and especially um New Zealand and, and Australia, um, uh, and I, I would say that like the, the the sort of anti-black racism that goes on um, in, in New Zealand and, and Australia is um, of a particularly egregious nature, and it, and it is something that is not talked about as widely as it really should be, um, because they are not necessarily cultural uh, uh, hegemons um, in the way that the the US and UK are, and it is like, definitely a, a sort of epidemic that has gone under-commented on. Nevertheless... Um Tolkien does describe the orcs as black in the books. Um he is not going for black skin. Um he is using um uh referencing back to medieval color theory. Um and um as he say, says that the orcs are, you know, black creatures or black figures. Um, he also uses things like the white lady or the green man. Um I was really kind of fretting about how to like explain this because when you say like the black creatures, it's really hard to not think Black is in skin tone um' uh, because culturally that's where we're at um you know Tolkien almost certainly was also like uh, like an anti black racist but but in this specific in- instance when he evokes the word black, um he's doing it as a reference to medieval color theory and this notion that like black is like related to like darkness, the absence of light um, obviously, but also like this sort of like questionable morality and and the kind of like dearth of like the light of like and, and to put it in explicitly Catholic terms like the light of christ um. I'm kind of grateful that The Green Knight as a film has come out uh, recently and it's quite popular because it because it, it it bangs it's a great film because it makes it easier to kind of explain how Tolkien is employing these color words um as, as you know signifiers of, of uh, like a specific history of symbolism and not as like a like a like a specific and precise um descriptor um when he says black creatures, he means that they are of the darkness, dark side for Star Wars fans. He does not mean they are characters who are black, who look like people of African descent. He is evoking that that color symbolism. Um, it is therefore very, very frustrating to me um, that um, this interpretation, misinterpretation I should say, um, survived into the films. Um, not least because they had not not least because there are so many aesthetic cues in the books that they outright ignore um, and, and don't really ever try to justify with, oh, but in the books it says this. Um, you know, uh, the, the one that sticks out to me right now is like all of the, the, uh, Gondorim, everybody from Gondor has black hair, um, and is like of a slightly darker skin tone, uh, than the, for example, the Rohirrim. The, the films have them all as like strawberry blondes, um, bar Denethor. Um, and I think there is some interesting, um, and noteworthy kind of aesthetic, uh, Worrying aesthetic, um, symbolism in- inherent to giving Donathor black hair, um, when both of his sons who are allegedly good side have, like, strawberry blonde hair, um, Anyways, uh, they disregard the aesthetic cues of the books. In those instances, they um, disregard the aesthetic cues in the books uh, for a variety of ways. Um, Aragorn is another example. All of the Hobbits are some more. So they don't have a problem saying no to what the books dictate for the like look and feel of these characters and of these worlds when they want to. It is, I would say, therefore, a massive shame um, that they keep in this deeply racist element of it um and try and pass it off with well the book's this um because it had it you know the books didn't stop them before um so why is it that this one specific misinterpretation of the text gets to stay
0: no i think that's fair and that's why i wanted to highlight um that the urukai. Uh, some of them are portrayed with uh dreads and um Corn rolls, uh, not corn rolls, but, you know, braided hair um, in a way that's evocative of African-American, I assume African-British hairstyles. Um, I, I don't know a lot about hair. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's very obvious, not obvious, but, um, it's very kind of damning that, like you say, this is a place where they decided to like stick to whatever notes or book pointers, or I don't want to throw Christopher Lee under the bus, but whatever pointers he may have given on them, uh, versus trying to come up with something just a little, maybe more fantastical and less leaning on kind of the racial tropes associated with our own real world. And just to like hammer home that Tolkien uses the word black, you know, not to mean um, skin tone, but rather, you know, just evil. Um, We see it all over these stories. There's the Black Gate, there's Black Speech, there's the Black Riders. And again, it's all just meant to be evocative of that medieval color theory, which, um, of course, it probably has its own roots in racism, of course. Um, but the theme of darkness and shadow specifically um, carry a lot of weight in these films. Um, So when I hear the word black in Lord of the Rings, uh, whether watching or reading it, um, I don't, you know, I think of like the Black Gate or Black Speech or, you know, the Black Riders as what that intended um, use of the word is.
1: Yeah. And I, I like, I find this like especially biting in terms of like a character's design decision here for the Orcs of Isengard, because the Orcs of Mordor, as, as you described, don't rely quite as heavily on that like inherently racialized look. Um, like they, they, um, they are more fantastical, like you say. Um, they they do sort of have that more m- like uh, more intense feeling of having sat down and thought about like what something scary would look like, um, and not having just dived at the first instance of um, I'm scared of black people. Um, let me make the scary characters in this look like black people or evoke black people. Um, the orcs of Mordor certainly have, I think, a little bit more like careful consideration put into what they look like. Uh, they are also not without like some some worrying fault but there is there's definitely um precedent in these films specifically for uh slightly less racialized villain characters um so it's not like you can you know there there is really no argument to be made that like oh it, you know it's impossible to make a villain that isn't like racist looking it absolutely isn't they even managed
0: to do it here
1: they've just in these films they just in this specific instance chose not to and i think that is a like a real crime gem.
0: Yeah. And I think we, I, I am not going to speak for Emily, but I think we want to reiterate that it doesn't really matter whether they are consciously or unconsciously doing it. Because um, I don't think like, you know, Peter Jackson sitting there and, hey, let's make this as racist as possible. Um, but, you know, it what comes out, at, you know, what is played on screen and what we can take meaning from is kind of what matters. So um, whether they were explicitly or not going for this, that is the effect it has. And I think, um, maybe some of it, and this is not meant to be apologetics, but maybe trying to get in the, into the mind of the production is that the orcs don't really feature prominently in the Fellowship of the Ring. We have the Urukai, of course. Um, you know, we have the whole goblin thing in Moria, but like they are not like as made as much as people or as having cliques or communities or like separate factions of them that kind of emerges more in the two towers. And then most of all in return of the King. Um, and that's where you start seeing the more quote unquote diverse looking orcs. Whereas for fellowship, they might've just been like, Hey, Hey, the main thing is just getting these urukai to all kind of look the same, and so just kind of one mistake kind of compounds itself into many mistakes by not really veering away from that aesthetic in the first film.
1: Yeah, and I think for me, like that, like I, I think you're, you're you're definitely right on there, and I think, um, it, it for me, kind of points to the, this ongoing kind of feeling of uh, of like not like a feeling of strangeness but one of the things that I find kind of odd and frustrating about these films is like where and when they chose to think deeply about what they were doing um because i think in terms of like a lot of the well you know you know as we mentioned in this episode specifically a lot of thought is going into like camera angles and a lot of thought is going into set design and lighting design um and it seems to me that there are quite a few instances where like in terms of the narrative as written the text that they actually put down in in the script they're not thinking as strongly or as like um uh, uh considerately um as they really should be doing with something of this caliber um and you know I'll you know I'll keep coming back to this cuz it's just something that sticks in my craw-, craw throughout all three of the films but it is interesting to see what they choose to value highly versus what they kind of push to the side is like, you know, uh, we're, we we do not need to think too hard about this. We'll just get it, get it out there, get it done.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, and I think uh, from there we can kind of trans, uh, transition uh, into the scenery portion of, or talk about the scenery that's kind of evoked here. Um, I want to just, you know, go to Film Class 101 or Fiction 101 and talk about sympathetic nature for a little bit. Um, Just the fact that, you know, when it's raining and stormy, it's supposed to create uh, emotion of gloom, much like it does in real life. Um, This is a tried-and-true method, you know. I think the example I go-to is Beauty and the Beast and how the Beast's castle is always under heavy clouds. It's often raining or storming around it. Um, And we get that same kind of sense here um, because especially the first scene where we just kind of check in with Isengard, uh, we see the beginning of tearing down the trees and see where Gant where Gandalf is. Um, it's just rain and everything just looks kind of miserable. And it really sets a tone for these Isengard scenes. And then um, in that second scene, when we go from the top of Orthanc down into the caverns of Isengard, it starts evoking a sense of hell. Um, you're literally going beneath ground into the fires and it's all being cultivated by demons and um, you know monsters, so to speak.
1: Yeah. And and I I think this is like, uh, one of the things that I, and again, like moments where they're choosing to think quite deeply about things versus moments when they are not, because they've obviously thought quite deeply about one of the, the sort of potential influences, um, or, like, unintentional influences um, on the Lord of the Rings writ large, which is Dante's Inferno. Um, and I'll come back to Dante and uh, Tolkien's relationship to Dante a little bit later, but, like, uh, this is Dante's Inferno. Um, this is absolutely Dante's Inferno. Um, if, everything about the way it's structured, the, the, the sort of rings that we see as we descend into the caverns are is, like, very, very evocative of Dante. Um, and... All throughout these films, um, there is a, a sense of like the Inferno's presence the whole way through, whether it's the dead marsh- marshes, which are um, immediately um, equivocal to—and I'm going to say it wrong, and I knew I was going to say it wrong from the minute I put this down in my notes—I think it's like the th- sixth ring of the Inferno, where um, the dead are lying face down, uh, boiling in their own blood— There's Minas Tirith, which um, evokes the city of Dis, which is like the city of the dead in the Inferno. Uh, There's the absence of uh, a big bad across these movies and films. Um, In Dante's Inferno, you meet a lot of surrogates for uh, the devil, but by the time you actually get down to the very bottom of hell and meet the devil, he's basically an animatronic... Figure he's not really he doesn't speak necessarily he doesn't really do very much he just eats uh, three particularly egregious um, sinners and and that's really it Um, and that is you know very close to what Sauron does where he you know doesn't really exist in the narrative Um, the hellishness of Isengard is the other place where where this sort of overlap is incredibly incredibly clear Um, and I I think like um, someone with uh, uh, like a bit more. or A bit better eyesight than me would probably be able to. I suspect uh, go through all of these shots and and be able to very clearly equate um, what's going on in the background to the various circles of hell. Um, and I think it is like really r- really beautifully done and like very cleverly thought out. Um, and it just it just looks baller. It just looks great.
0: I recently re-watched um, the Studio Ghibli movie Princess Mononoke, which uh, released in 1997, I believe, and uh, mostly just because I love that movie, um, like I love all Ghibli movies, um, but that movie is very much about the conflict between nature and industry, and... Um, one thing that kind of stuck out to me when I watched it this past week was how much the Iron Town in the movie Princess Mononoke resembles a lot of how Isengard is kind of uh, made up of these big blast furnaces, um, everyone's working, um, and just kind of how that is affecting nature around them. It leads all these... Mythical beasts, which are kind of stand stand-ins for nature, to start attacking the town, and the whole premise of the movie is kind of the same as the all these Isengard scenes we're talking about about the conflict between nature and industry. Um, so I just really like that analogy, and it could be something that uh, Peter Jackson was, you know, did see. Uh, prior or during his creation of the Lord of the Rings. And there's actually several shots um, that I'm going to bring up in future episodes that also reminded me of Princess Mononoke. So I'm um, just planting that seed now.
1: I think this fits into like a long line of uh, like a- Anglophone directors, movie directors, um uh, like, I don't want to say, like, stealing or, like, appropriating from, but, like, being very heavily influenced by, um, like, Japanese cinema. Um, and, and like, you know, the other big example of this is um, uh, Kurosawa's influence on George Lucas. Um, and I think this is one of these things where, like, um, it is one of the very nice elements of film and of cinema generally in that you do get to see these, like, um, uh, cross-cultural co- collaborations and influences more clearly than, than anywhere else, I think. Because... Cinema is something that exists largely, or or can exist largely without words. You know, you could do subs and dubs if you want, but what's on screen is 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 visible, and so you get that connection without the like language barrier
0: in such like, a beautiful way. Yeah, and the, uh, going back to like one of our early discussions about how. Um, The bar for fantasy was pretty low. There wasn't a lot of live action stuff. And a lot of that is because just we didn't have like the special effects or the tools to bring it to life in a way that we did starting with The Lord of the Rings. And I think that's why you can maybe see some animation influences, whether it is Beauty and the Beast or Princess Mononoke or any any number of animated films that kind of deal in that fantasy aesthetic, uh, kind of making its way into The Lord of the Rings just because that is one of the touchstones for the genre at this point in time. So we just played you in with the nature theme, which is one of the leitmotifs introduced during this section of, um, the story um it this theme itself really climaxes at near the end of the two towers with the last march of the ants um and uh this nature theme will also pop up whenever we see that moth or butterfly um again in these films whether it's in return of the king or the hobbit an unexpected journey um i like that again these leitmotifs almost have their own character arcs the way they mix in with each other or how they kind of climax into one like I hate to use the word epic, but one epic version of that theme played at a really climactic moment. And we kind of get that here with the nature theme. And I'd just like to call it out now, not so much for this moment, but the last March of the Ends is possibly my favorite moment in, these, in the trilogy. Um, and the way that the score plays on that moment is a big reason for that. But having that kind of set up early on with these fellowship moments really goes a long way into kind of building um, kind of the impact of that later on
1: yeah and i and I think this is gets back to the, the kind of cyclical nature of these films and like the way that like they are um, immensely concerned with setting up the building blocks um of this story um like very clearly from the off um at, at, you know as we've talked about, but but also sort of um establishing their kind of own internal tropes um, and like creating their own storytelling language. Um, And, you know, for, um, you know, humorless nerds like me who like to spend our times our time spare time on, you know, Tumblr or Twitter or whatever, you know, diving through the insane shit that Tolkien writes, you know, we often find that there are, like, lots of things that come up time and time again. I mentioned earlier, like, The White Lady is an example of of one thing that Tolkien likes to use a lot, but, like, Withered and Renewed is another one of these. Um And the film is, the films are very consciously doing that with the music they use, Um and it is just that lovely little linkage, I think.
0: And whereas the nature theme is all kind of, like, it has that choral element, it seems very soft, uh, very strings-focused, uh, focused, uh it contrasts uh, directly with the Isengard theme, which we really get for the first time in full now, um, because um, the theme we have for Isengard is specifically tied to the Urukhai um, and Saruman following the betrayal of Gandalf. So we didn't get it in that earlier scene. Um, but the Urukhai theme, uh, which we inserted during our recap, um, you know, it's a lot of big drums, big horns. It's very rhythmic. Um you know and metallic sounding so it sounds like a forge it sounds like people regularly beating iron uh tempering it molding it into the shapes they need um but it also doubles as kind of a march uh so that when the Urukai are on the move uh, later on in this film and then again in the two towers it acts almost as like a rally march or like an army um you know I keep saying March because I don't know another <laughs> word for it, um, but it just all kind of, you know, going to that tone uh, to something that's very rhythmic, has a very standard meter, um, you know, 4-4, four, four, you know, kind of timing on it, all that. Uh, so it just, the two themes not only get set up here, but they also just contrast each other, which is kind of the core contrast or the core conflict that surrounds Isengard and these stories is a little bit of the nature and the industry thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of these things where like I so I when I was in middle school uh, a billion years ago I played the French horn um, and I played the French horn really shittily, um, but it's because we were stuck playing like garbage. Like I mean, no offense to like John Phillips, who's a fan, but just not not the kind of thing that is like interesting to twelve year olds with like undiagnosed ADHD. But I like sit here and I listen to this music and I'm like, if someone had put that sheet music in front of me, I like I would not have dropped it like I did. Like, I would still be playing French horn now because that shit bangs. I have absolutely nothing clever to say here. I just, like... The music here is the sort of music that, like, inspires—what's the horrible joke—not joke, but line about, like, the Velvet Underground, where, like, everyone who listened to the Velvet—not many people listened to the Velvet Underground, but everyone who did went and made a band. Like, imagine if everyone who listened to this, like, went off and picked up a brass instrument or whatever. Like, it would mm, be—this is just getting increasingly stupid the longer I talk—but, like, marching band city, and by God, would it
0: rock. (laughs) I was also a failed musician in grade school. I picked up the drums, though. Nice. Um, That didn't last long. But again, maybe if I had this to bang along to, (laughs) I would have stuck to it. Um, And one of the neat tricks of the segment, which we'll kind of close the section out on, is the fact that um, you almost can't tell where the score ends and the Foley work begins um, because the way that the orcs are... uh, what's it called, tempering the metal um, and, you know, beating the anvils. It's basically in time with the music. So what is actually part of the score and what is actually part of the sound work? um, You can't really tell. And I think that just all works to great effect to give it that kind of coherent sounding feel
1: yeah it's the theatricality of these films I think like these are films that are very like as much as they are very aware and like cognizant of like the the like cinema history the cinematic history that is behind them they are also films that are like quite aware of like the the history of theater and like performances on stage that also kind of undergirds what cinema is um, because that kind of like syncing up the the you know the noise of, of the action to the music is like something that you would absolutely do 100% of the time in on stage um, without you know without ever having think about it but it's not necessarily something you do like as naturally or as like um unquestioningly um in cinema um and and in this they they just do it right off and off and it's very much that sign of like they're thinking about all of the art that has come before them and every like everything that's available to them and what works best for each scene to build up this like coherent like coherent cogent picture
0: So now moving into the token token book section here, and perhaps the main thing to point out about these scenes is there are scenes that we don't really get in the books. Um, we get Gandalf telling us the story of Sauruman's corruption and what happened to him when we get to the council of Elrond in Rivendell, but we don't actually see the mobilization of Isengard. Uh, we don't see the process of uh, tearing up the roots. Um, so, inserting all these scenes um, is kind of a way to, you know, A, just, you know, tell the story through visuals instead of having Gandalf tell it to us. But then it also allows them to play on themes of industrialization, which may or may not be as poignant or as um, intentional as maybe we make it out having sat with these films for 20 years. But a lot of this is stuff that is kind of. Cu- Uh, created from the idea surrounding Isengard around the Urukai, but without any kind of direct text or a chapter in the book that you can really point to. And that's probably why we get stuff like Lurt being created for this scene, uh, because that just helps us, um, you know, kind of center these scenes in a cinematic way, or, you know, kind of showing the mechanism of Gandalf's escape via the moth calling the eagle, as opposed to, um, and to be honest, I have not reread the the Rivendale portion so I forget exactly how Guaher came to uh, find Gandalf so but they actually set that up so when Gandalf kind of finishes the story in Rivendale it all kind of thematically makes sense and it doesn't feel like a plot uh beat was missed
1: yeah and um, and I think like uh, like it is also part of this um effort by the filmmakers to think it you know in some ways about what the themes of uh the books are um, and um they choose you know there are a lot of things that Tolkien tries to pack in the Lord of the Rings. He is like quite a preachy guy. He has a lot to say. He's really using Lord of the Rings to kind of lay out his thoughts on the world. Um so there's a lot, you know, and and um it is not to say that like one theme or one um like underlying message is necessarily more important than the other, although I will say that it, it there is one, um, and uh, it's the pacifism element or, like, the pseudo-pacifism element, um, and it's a shame that that gets bungled. <laughs> Nevertheless, that is, like, my own personal take. Um, there is also this this sort of underlying element, as you say, of, like, the relationship between, like, industrialization and nature, um, which is also part of how— uh, The Lord of the Rings is situated in this wider, like, cultural and literary history, and uh, briefly political history, um, and and this sort of its ongoing relationship to the Romantic movement Um, is, I think, important to set this up here uh, as we kind of really start to kick off into the the wider um, story. You know, this is kind of one of the. First of many points of no return, but this is also one of the first of many points of, of seeing the world beyond the Shire, um, and like truly beyond the Shire and truly beyond Eriador. Um, and so we're getting into the big leagues with the story. And one of the ways that we're getting into the big leagues with the story is by beginning to add in and beginning to like um, expound upon some of the, the early themes. Um, you know, the Shire is beautiful and green um, and uh, people live in harmony with nature. Um, taken by itself that doesn't really say anything. Taken in contrast to Isengard, which is um, dark and jagged and, um, you know, full of industrialization where people are bending nature to uh, their whims. uh, Suddenly the Shire means a lot more. And Isengard is really one of the first places where um, we start to get this, Um, which is all a very long-winded way of getting into this broader discussion, which is um, about Tolkien and the romantic movement. Um, and that's capital R Romantic here. And um, I'm going to say capital R Romantic about a million times during this segment because I just get like so like anxious that people are going to think I'm like suddenly talking about like dime a dozen romance novels. I might be, you know, they're not they're not bad, but uh, I am talking here about the romantic movement. And um, one of the important um, things that i need to say here is that i am not a scholar of the romantic movement i'm really not and like my specialty is like uh 1980 scotland uh which is to be clear the least capital r romantic and also (laughs) lowercase (laughs) r romantic thing you could ever find so like if you are a scholar of romanticism uh, please uh have have mercy have grace um nevertheless uh romanticism as a movement as a literary and cultural movement and also uh sort of in an ancillary sense, a political movement are very, very important to what J.R.R. Tolkien is trying to do with Lord of the Rings, which is in part to create an English mythos. Um, in the films, uh, that romanticism element, and and specifically the conflict between nature and industry, is played up a lot more than it is in the books. It's not to say it's not present in the books, it absolutely is, but it's just uh, kind of bound up in a million other things that Tolkien is trying to say and every single sentence of this of these books um so it's not as prominent um whether or not it was the right call to overemphasize that industry versus nature element uh who knows? Um, I'm not necessarily going to pine on it. I don't really care. Um, but if you are one of the people who thinks that the industrialization versus nature uh, shtick is really interesting and really good, and a good thing about the films, I would recommend you read The, <laughs> the Last Ringbearer, which is by a Soviet writer. I think it came out. I, I don't say Soviet to be like, oh, there's scary Russians. Like he is, he is someone who is like broadly more class-conscious than your average Anglophone writer. Um he published it and I'm going to say, like, uh so kind of latently post-Soviet, um, and it is about uh, repainting the Lord of the Rings as if uh, Sarabad and Sauron are the good guys, um, and the feudal aristocratic bastards, and Gondor and Rohan and the Shire are the bad guys, uh, which, fair enough uh, – the rating is not great. <laughs> it's not the best rating you will ever come across and certainly pales in comparison to Tolkien, but politically quite funny and, and, and you know, worth some time, uh, you know, pour yourself a, a hefty drink and sit down with it for an evening and it will not be an evening wasted. That's it. <laughs> I, I feel like I should also like mention that like if I sound like an undergrad lecturer right now, I've just realized I am wearing a jumper with elbow patches. So I'm really just like a caricature of myself at this point. Um so Tolkien and the Romantic movement. Uh the Romantic movement is a literary, political, and cultural movement. Um kind of starts in earnest in the late 18th century, carries on, uh, depending on who you ask until the kind of mm, start middle of the 20th century, uh the 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 two world wars basically obliterate it as, like, a sort of something of any uh, real hegemony in the world, although there are quite a few people, particularly in England, who try to keep it alive well past its uh, expiration date. Um, I'm someone who's, like, tremendously sympathetic to Romanticism generally, but it's not something I would organize all political lines, uh, but it is still there. Um, romanticism highlights uh, a, a whole... whole bunch of things um this kind of kinship with um and respect and reverence to to nature is is one of these things but there's also sort of like a a kind of um yearning for ancientry um that is integral to to the romantics uh the romantic poets uh um, you know, lots of people will know these guys. Um, Keats is my favorite one. I'm very sorry. Please don't roast me on that. Um, Percy Shelley is uh, is another one that people like. And these are guys who are looking back to uh, classical civilizations, ancient Greece, like Keats has his uh, o- Ode on a Grecian Urn. Um, and they are looking at um, these civilizations, these ancient civilizations as like models uh, to a varying extents of like the ideal society. Um, and that goes hand in hand with the, this kind of like uh, uh, mutually beneficial relationship to nature. Um, it is also worth saying that that there is both right wing and left wing romanticism. Um, my personal hero, E.P. Thompson, who is a, a, was a, an English Marxist historian, actually probably be really mad at being called English, a uh, British Marxist historian, uh, was a, a, a romantic socialist. Um, both of those capital letters at the start there. Um, and uh, Raymond Williams, for uh, for example, is uh, another socialist romantic, but they're also right wing. Um, And uh, I I feel obliged to say that um, there is this kind of pervasive and, like, quite ugly, not for, like, the knee-jerk reactionary reasons that people might think, but, like, ugly myth that, like, Tolkien is an anarchist. Uh, Tolkien is not an anarchist. Um, I really need to get this out there. Tolkien is not an anarchist. Um, He describes himself in a single letter as an anarchist, but he's not an ideologue. He's not someone who's particularly re- well read in the world of political theory. And in the same sentence that he calls himself an anarchist, he explains that he's an anarchist because he's opposed to the Oxford town council's decision to build a motorway through the center of town. Um, I promise you that this is not Emma Goldman levels of anarchism. Um, I just like I just feel like I need to let that sit there in the world. He's opposed to motorways and is therefore an anarchist. Only, only in Oxford. (laughs)
0: Uh, To be fair, I sympathize with uh, being against motorways and cars, especially just now in 2021 and the way that um, car uh, culture kind of wags the tail of so much infrastructure and all that. So while he might not be an anarchist, I will at least express solidarity with Tolkien being against this one motorway in this Oxford town. Yeah, yeah. Though I wish he did have a better way to categorize himself. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, I you know, I don't live in Glasgow and hopefully we will never live in Glasgow, but Glasgow is absolutely decimated by the uh, building of uh, a motorway through the center of it, it is a crying shame. And yes, uh, down with car culture. Um. But I, I think the fact that like Tolkien positions his like, whole political identity around something is like, frankly inane um, as um, uh, the building of a motorway um, is is, is a, uh, largely a good way, and I'm trying not to be too condescending as I say this, but largely a good way of um, evincing that he's not an especially complex political theater—thinker, um, rather. Um, there is an enormous amount of ideology telegraphed in his writings, but it's largely unexamined and, and kind of incidental rather than purposeful. Um, ideological sentiment, so he says lots of things about kings, um, but he's mostly saying those things about kings, not necessarily because he's trying to push um, a well-thought-out political manifesto, but because he's a guy who has a lot of opinions, and even if he is not really the next uh, Gramsci, he is going to write like he is. Um Some of what Tolkien is trying and quite frequently failing to grasp at in his more political chat in the books is actually rather more successfully articulated by uh, my old favorite Dante Alighieri in his uh, book uh, *De Monarchia on on monarchy, um, which essentially delineates the, like, Catholic view or, or proto, not proto, semi-Catholic view of the role and purpose of the state and the temporal realm um, vis-a-vis like the kingdom of God. So like, what rights does an emperor have to rule? And Dante argued that it should be one sole emperor who rules over The Earth, not unlike Aragorn in some ways, Um, and what rights does you know God um, does God have um, over the ability to to rule the Earth? Um, Tolkien was absolutely aware of Dante, um, but was deeply ambivalent towards him. Um, He was in the Oxford Dante Society. This seems to be mostly because C.S. Lewis bullied him into it. Um, but in 1967, he Tolkien said, uh, Dante doesn't attract me. He's full of spite and malice. I don't care for his petty relations with petty people in petty cities. Um, which I love his quote because the first time I sat down to read uh, uh, The Inferno, um, I said that I loved Dante for all of those reasons. <laughs> But uh, the pettiness is key. Um, Nevertheless, uh, Tolkien was incredibly well-versed in the various literary movements of history and had no problem whatsoever placing himself uh, firmly within the line of the Romantics. Um, And and the reason for this is um, uh, largely contingent on on the sort of environment in which he's writing. Um, The Romantics the early romantics are writing in the late 18th, early 19th century are, are writing at kind of the apex of two major political and world historical trends. The first is the, the rise of like bourgeois democratic revolutions. So you've got the US um, in uh, 76 through like 89. You have the French revolution 89 through question mark depends on who you ask. Uh, go ask Mike Duncan. <laughs> um, you have the Haitian revolution. You have lots of like bourgeois democracies coming out um, and along with this the sort of establishment of a bourgeois democracy. You also have this like idea for the first time, uh, cheers to old Benny Anderson, uh, the notion of like a nation as like a singular people. Um, and then you also have, um, a a second ish industrial revolution. Um, the, the, early romantics are writing around broadly around the time of the first industrial revolution, which uh, irreparably fucked up the planet um, and the after effects of which we will probably never recover from, not to sound too much like an ecofash, but whatever. Uh, Tolkien is writing um, after uh, world war one and world war two alike um, in a moment in uh, England, especially Britain kind of more generally um, where people are starting to think about the nation and what it means to be a part of the nation, the British nation or the English nation and and how they can sort of establish themselves as members of those things and also as this kind of second industrial revolution is, second or third depending on who you ask, industrial revolution is kicking off Um, Britain in particular is going through several massive periods of rebuilding after both the First World War and the Second World War um, which is why you get Tolkien bitching about motorways um, in Oxford because there's an enormous amount of building going on. Um, So the conditions under which, um, you know, uh, I'm going to say Keats and Co. because I'm like a Keats fan, but like the conditions in which like Keats, Shelley and Co. are writing are broadly similar, though slightly more developed or slightly less developed to the conditions under which Tolkien is writing. So the romantic movement is a pretty clear fit. There's also uh, an element of which like uh, this kind of yearning, this like medieval yearning um, that is involved in kind of some of the later romantics um, is also present. Very much present in Tolkien, who is, for the most part, a medievalist. Um, I have already mentioned um, E.P. Thompson, who's my personal hero, um, who is absolutely the reason I'm a historian and do the things that I do. But I just want to f- mention this quote that I found that was cracking me up today. Um, so E.P. Thompson uh, is a real loose cannon of a guy, brilliant writer. I recommend that everybody reads uh, the Making the English Working Class. It is an enormous book, but well worth your time. Uh, it is beautifully written, if nothing else. Even if you zone out on all the facts and the stats, of which there are many— you're still reading some lovely prose. Um, E.P. Thompson in 1981 gets into the papers, I can't remember which one, um, and is bitching about the Americans as he's wont to do, and he's saying that American Cold War era politicians read too much Lord of the Rings, um, and it is evident in their anti-Soviet policy, um, and he says that the, the Americans imagine uh, you know, the USSR as Mordor and they are the like good little Shire folk who have come to destroy the USSR. Um, and he's like, stop reading Lord of the Rings. this is really embarrassing for you to shape your world view on. And I would like to add that um, because I you know nothing is sacred to me. And he also drops a whole bunch of niche references to Tolkien as he's saying like as he's like yelling at these American politicians for reading too much Lord of the Rings. So uh, pot, kettle black here a bit
0: um anyways god love him and, and
1: you know may he rest in peace <laughs> or whatever
0: yeah uh just kind of speaking to american illiteracy um or just like historical illiteracy when these movies were coming out was uh, when i was uh end of senior year of high school and going into college or university if you're an international listener um and we would see these you know isengard scenes and you know i I went to school at University of Illinois, which is in the middle of cornfields. And um, there's definitely a lot of conservatives uh, on on uh, campus there. And they would see these scenes and be like, oh, this is supposed to be a stand-in for the Soviet Union. It looks like the orcs have essentially sickles or something like that, and they're hammers and all this stuff. Um, so it's not like completely foreign to me that someone might take that kind of reading as wrong as I think it is. Um, I definitely I saw that happen in 19 or 2001 2002 so the fact that it was happening back in the 50s and 60s actually does not surprise me.
1: Yeah, it's a lot it's people taking not people taking literature too seriously. You could never take literature too seriously I think, but people people being idiots about things that are quite clear. And also I think Tolkien himself just not being as much of a political genius as he may have thought he was. Um all of this is like a I'm 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 terribly sorry to like do this like under God lecture. I feel like the romantic movement is quite important and the political elements of it are like wildly um underrated compared to the aesthetic elements, which is why I'm kind of overbalancing. Uh, I feel obliged to also say that Percy Shelley was actually sort of an anarchist. Um in some sense or or certainly of the left um and uh though i do not like his poetry necessarily there are lots of left wingers who get mad at me when i say that because because he is kind of our man um our man in oxford or wherever the fuck he was um well i can't
0: get mad at you because i don't know how to read so (laughs) like at this point i kind of wish you couldn't
1: read (laughs) it's okay i'm in too deep now um So aesthetic romanticism. Ha ha. Here we go. This is the movie connection. We're finally there, lads. Um, Nature. This is it. Nature. Uh, Nature and medievalism. Uh, These are kind of the two uh, center points, the two tadpoles of aesthetic romanticism. Uh, For example, as I've just gotten finished dunking on Percy Shelley, uh, Shelley's Mont Blanc uh, is a brilliant poem um, and written at the same time that uh, Frankenstein was originally thought up. Uh, Frankenstein is the better work. I'm not just being like a chauvinist there. A woman chauvinist, if that's possible, is a far, (laughs) far better written work. Shelley's Mont Blanc, uh, Mont Blanc. Holy shit! I got very American there. Shelley's Mont Blanc is a beautiful example of poetry that um, highlights the the importance of the sublime and the overwhelming power of nature, and is kind of this like seminal work of of the Romantic movement. Um, I also mentioned Keats, Ode on a Grecian Urn. That's another one that also gets into this element of like the classics. Um, Unfortunately, in England, uh, they they also have poets and artists there. Um, I. Like, it is shocking to me that they are capable of doing it, but here we are. The English have managed to produce some art. Um, ironic on a show of Hall of the Rings, but here we are. Um, one of these important works of art is actually a hell of a tune, um, and I am saying this through, like, blinding jealousy because it is a, a banger. Um, but is based on uh, William Blake's Jerusalem uh, and is uh, effectively a second national anthem to to, to England. Uh Britain has God save the Queen and England, I suppose, has Jerusalem. Um and um Blake's Poetry and Blake's writing, I think, is definitely influential, whether or not Tolkien was keen to own up to it, to what Tolkien's doing. Um, I was going to like try and absolutely destroy the English psyche by reading Jerusalem in a super American accent. Um, I'm not going to do that. I'll read a stanza. I'll move on. Um, but this stanza, I think, is really key for kind of getting a sense of where like English romanticism mm-hmm. interplays with Tolkien, um, and it is. And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills?" And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Um, and it took an inhuman amount of effort to not sing this song. the <laughs> song is damn catchy. Um, but it is essentially this instance of uh, counterposing the, these dark satanic mills, which is a, a reference to the Industrial Revolution and it making England ugly and smoggy and gray, to God's light and God's face looking down upon England and blessing it with beautiful green hills. Um, and Tolkien is obviously very, very interested in this. Because he sets up the Shire as basically Oxford, but with fewer people from Oxford, which is a win-win, um, and counterposes it to both Mordor and Isengard, which are these dark satanic mills. These are these are these awful evil uh, outputs of the industrial revolution that have kind of taken the godliness out of the environment. They have brought us to some sort of like moral wreck uh, that was not inevitable, but was but was you know foisted upon us through like the the, the like failure of human choice, um, and now shit's ugly, yo. Um, And that is, (laughs) I was going to say in a nutshell, but that is not in a nutshell. That is a very long winded way of saying this. Connection between Tolkien and the Romantic movement, and I'm just like having heart palpitations of thought of some poor fucker who like actually knows what like they're talking about with respect to the Romantic movement, sitting there like dead-eyed listening to this. Like, what is going on? But there it is. Uh, That is like too, uh, yeah, too 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 many years or too many months at this point of me being out of uni and not remembering how to research stuff anymore. But that's it. Tolkien and Romanticism. Old things, medieval things, trees, and mind-sucking. There you go.
0: Yeah, and just a reminder, this will all be on the midterm. Uh, so uh, please, uh, you know, re-listen to this section. Uh, take up your notes, because once we get to the end of the first book, uh, Fellowship, we will have a quiz. Uh, we won't have a quiz, but I guess if you want a quiz, we can create a quiz. Uh go sign up for my Patreon and maybe we'll create a quiz with enough
1: people. (laughs) They're real gluttons for punishment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com nuclear bomb, which goes towards this and other projects I've been working on, and possibly also for midterm exams <laughs> on our podcast. Um, and speaking of a nuclear bomb, hey, that's me. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontieres. <laughs>
1: And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting, where I guess I will be holding office hours 24-7, so come shot, and I will try not to feel too much shame.
0: Toasting a pint to our sound editor and unofficial T.A., Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.
1: We zoom across collateral oh fuck. I did that again. Ah Okay. You're fine. Oh Um I, I did that like three times earlier. I don't know where I'm getting collateral from.
0: Anyways. Weird. <laughs> um You're good. You're good.